Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. He is indeed worthy. He is the only one who is truly worthy. Yet, in his grace, he allows us to rule with him. He's saying, we're a kingdom of priests. What an amazing God we serve. What an amazing God we serve. We are continuing our study in the life of Moses. And today we're in Numbers chapter 11. Now, from young to old, whether it's about difficult circumstances we face, our weaknesses and limitations, or our unmet cravings for pleasure, we've all shown a sort of propensity to at times complain and to be unhappy and distressed. I would say every single person in this room, if I asked you to raise your hand, if you were being honest, all hands would go up. We have all complained about these things at one time or another. <laughs> Jen's like, not me, no. <laughs> We've all done it. It's a universal human experience. And in many ways, we're not so different than children throwing temper tantrums when things don't go our way. We gripe, we weep, we complain. Yet, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's clear, this is a commentary on, on the Old Testament here, it's clear that the desert experiences, that one of which we're reading about this morning, which are recorded in God's word, serve a purpose of setting an example for us. Israel, in the desert, they were laid low so that when we're tempted in these ways, we don't have to act and respond as they did. God has given us his glorious word that we may trust him and flourish as his people and, and learn his unchanging character in ways that he is the same God of these Israel people, that this is our God too. And so as we read the Holy Scriptures, we're going to gain insight this morning as to what God's perfect character is like in relation to our complaints. How does God respond? He responds perfectly, of course. Here is what I believe Numbers 11 teaches us about the Lord. I believe this morning we'll see that the Lord is revealed as the one who is powerful in both his judgment and his compassion towards his people. And I think verse 23 in Numbers chapter 11 really uh, keys us in to what's going on here. Verse 23 says this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. You see, he is powerful to always do exactly as he says he will do. Just like in Numbers 11, his word is certain. What he declares, both his judgments and his, his compassionate love for us, is always going to be brought about by his great power. And we can trust in that, that no matter what is going on, his word will come to pass. And friends, if this is indeed true, here is a lesson for us to go home with. Here is sort of the thing to do. Your takeaway is always be content with the Lord's provision, trust in his words and his love, and refrain from complaining against him. Let's now read from the scriptures 
and see exactly how God reveals himself to us. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We are um, going to be reading the whole chapter. So starting at verse 1, God's scripture says this. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in a pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this, this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom and nurse as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give, all this, to give to all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry, this, uh, carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once, if I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people in their offices, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then... I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take the spirit who is upon you, and I will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am are six hundred thousand on foot, yet you have said, I will give them meat, so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? Then the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also he gathered 70 men of the elders 
uh, of the people and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had non, not gone out to the tent, uh, out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, and the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp and about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered the least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for, the, for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was still in between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and we thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to die for us, that we may have life with you, Lord, and we thank you for your word, for revealing who you are to us, Lord, through your holy scriptures. Oh God, I pray that you would do a mighty work here this morning, that we would chew on this word, delight in it, and be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we trust that you will do this now, and we love you and thank you for doing it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Anyone's uh, legs hurting after that? Stand in a while there. How do you think I feel up here? Numbers 11. There's really a few different uh, layers here uh, to the record. There's sort of an initial narrative at the beginning of the chapter in which God is judging the complainers and consuming the outskirts of the camp. His anger is, is kindled, and this sort of marks a shift in the book of Numbers, um, because prior to that, Numbers 1 through 10, it was smooth sailing as far as the record in Numbers shows. And then, then after this consuming of the complainers, there's sort of a, a back and forth simultaneous record here of the greedy cravings of the people on one hand, and, and God's judgment of them, and Moses' grievances, and God's compassion, and his help for Moses on the other Throughout these records or recorded incidents, we see God is responding powerfully and perfectly towards all of his people. And so because there's sort of three different stories here taking place in Numbers 11, I've broken it down into three points for us. The Lord's powerful response of righteous anger for our complaints of adversity the Lord's powerful response of righteous anger for our greedy cravings, and the Lord's powerful response of patient compassion for our weaknesses. So let's look at this first point here, the Lord's powerful response of righteous anger for our complaints 
of adversity. Verse 1 says, Now the people became like those who complain of adversity. Again, in Numbers 1 through 10, we see a record of great organization and the establishment of Israel as God's people as they make this move away from Mount Sinai towards the promised land. And this was good. Chapter 10, verse 33 and 34 indicate that the ark of the Lord is there. The cloud of the Lord was over them as they traveled. They had God's law. They had God's presence. They had the past provisions of manna. They had the past protection against the Amalekites that we read about in Exodus. Yet despite experiencing all of this genuine, uh, awesome uh, blessings from God, his presence, his guidance, his provision, his protection, Numbers 11 opens up with the people succumbing to discontentment and complaining about adversities. Now, the text doesn't indicate for us precisely what these adversities were. Maybe it was related to that later complaint of of meat, but the text doesn't explicitly say that. Maybe it's just the fact that they're traveling again back in the wilderness on the move again, and maybe the heat was getting to them. Maybe it was their aching feet. Who knows? In any case, they murmur, And some perceived whatever was happening as less than ideal circumstances. And we know that these complaints, whatever they were about specifically, will read, angered the Lord. They were unjustified, whatever they were. And friends, have we too not been established as his people? Has he too not given us a glorious revelation of the law? Has he has given us the scripture? He has given us Christ, the perfect revelation. Like, like Israel, he has given us his Holy Spirit permanently indwelling in the heart of the believer in the New Testament. And so I wonder, friends, do we think we have a right to complain with the blessings God has given us? No matter what adversity happens, complaining is unjustified. Why? Because the joy of being his people, the joy of his great revelation, the joy of his very presence should outweigh the adversities of this life that we should not even think to complain. Moreover, there is a future glory guaranteed for us that that outweighs any problem in this life, Paul writes in Romans. Whenever, you see, whenever we rightly recognize God's blessings and the value of his presence with us, complaining just should become an impossibility for us because it is impossible to complain and be thankful at the same time. Try it. Your brain's going to get awfully confused. You see, the ugliness of this world cannot compete with his perfect beauty. To pretend that the two are in some sort of competition and to complain is entirely to focus on the wrong thing. It is to have a glorious, magnificent, giant diamond before you and choose to focus on maybe that small little pebble in your shoe that's bothering you. Indeed, this will kindle the anger of the Lord just as it did for the Israelites when we make this mistake too, friends. We have a jealous God who is never uh, pleased with this sort of complaining over circumstances or adversity, especially when the murmuring and grumbling really is just against his, his sovereign direction and leading. He's the one who is leading them off of Mount Sinai and 
towards the promised land. You see, there's a difference, I think, between going to your father and saying, oh, father, this is tough, but I love you and I trust you, and being so angry at him that you judge his ways and you point the finger at him and you complain and you grumble and you murmur. You see, the latter is never called for, friends. Complaining about adversity is never something that is justified. And we also see that the Lord hears these complaints. It says that these complaints were in the hearing of the Lord and that the Lord heard it and was angered. Both those who complained about adversity and later on, we'll see, those who uh, had their greedy cravings, both of these things were heard by the Lord. You see, whatever is going on in the inner man is completely and totally bare before him. We cannot hide from him. He knows the words we will speak before they even leave our mouths. He knows our very thoughts. Psalm 119 Yet somehow, instead of humbling ourselves before God, we often complain of our circumstances as he overhears our wicked hearts. Friends, God hears. He knows what's going on in our hearts and in our lives. And perhaps instead of God indirectly overhearing our hearts, maybe we should pray to him directly and humble ourselves before him who hears all. I believe we live in one of the most complaint-driven cultures to ever exist largely because we live in one of the most prayerless cultures to ever exist. You see, brothers and sisters, it's often in that moment of prayer, in that moment of communion with the Almighty, focusing on the diamond of Christ, that it puts things back into perspective for us. The pebble in our shoe, again, is not worth focusing on in light of His majesty. And again, we we see this uh, even happens with Moses. Moses does a little complaining later on. And God says, I will show you. I will show you. And he sets things right. I think everyone in this room can be honest with God, can repent before the Lord, and experience once again that joy of seeing him, the joy of delighting in him as, as the treasure once again. This, friends, is the proper way to deal with the complaining spirit that so often rears its ugly head, focusing on God, communing with him. But when we buy the lie that he hates us, that he is not for us, and when we in our pride complain and crave greedy things of the flesh, know that God is listening. Know that he will chastise us for our complaining spirits against him. This is exactly what what we see here. It says, when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. So the name of that place was called Taborah, which means burning, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So the Lord heard, and so it says fire burned among them. Fire in Scripture is always either a sign of judgment or refinement, or both. And here we see God not tolerating the complaining spirits. It is an abomination to him, and so he wants to put an end to the complaining, to judge the complaining, to to refine his people. He burns among them and consumes the outskirts of the camp. Picture a dry plant being burnt, losing its form, turning to ash and smoke. This gets the idea of what it means for something to be consumed. He is, again, a jealous God. He did not tolerate physical idols at Sinai, as we read about in Exodus. And he will not tolerate idols of the heart, which lead to complaining, either. Friends, when we complain, again, it is clear we are not thankful for the cross. 
when we complain about those people who irritate us, when we complain about work, when we complain about life and adversities, it will be judged and it is devaluing the infinite treasure of Christ in our hearts, or it's at least indicating that we're not valuing him properly. And you know what, too? A complaining Christian is a poor tactic for evangelism. You know, uh, there, there was a story of uh, one of my professors at school and how he came to know the Lord. And it's because he was, went to school, and he was in high school, and he was sitting behind someone, and they were just so happy. And it was, almost made him sick. Like, why are you so happy all the time, he, he said to her. She turns around and she says, well, it's because I'm saved. That's why I'm happy. Oh, what a simple, beautiful picture. The people of Israel were saved, were they not? We've been saved, have we not? Let's put aside our complaining spirits, friends, and be thankful for what the Lord has done. Here's what we see also in verse 2. We see that even in just chastisement, God may be pleaded with for mercy and prayer. We already sort of alluded to this. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and it says, Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So what ended this initial judgment? What stopped God from consuming the whole camp instead of just the outskirts? Well, Moses prayed to the Lord. It was indeed the, the fire is burning, right? The fire is burning. Nothing else could be done. I mean, what are you going to do when the fire is burning in the wilderness in your camp? Probably not a lot of water around to put this fire out. They're crying out. We can't do anything. What else can we do? They cry out to their leader, Moses. And Moses, what is he going to do? He's going to cry out to the Lord. Moses knew who to truly go to. Moses went to the Lord. And friends, again, this is something you and I can do. When we're experiencing difficulties, trials, chastisement from the Lord, we can go to him. The biggest lie the enemy tells us is that when we're experiencing difficulties, that we should avoid God instead of run to him. Oh, friends, would you run to him? Even if it's chastisement, he's a loving father. And he wants to correct us, to make us into his image, to make, to make us holy. It is a refining fire for the people of God. And friends, we can go to him and we don't have to avoid him. But we can actually plea for mercy. And he is a compassionate God who will hear those pleas. Friends, for those of you, again, who are adopted as children of, of Christ, of children of the Father, he is no longer just a, a judge who is displaying wrath. That was done on the cross for us. He is a father. We've been adopted by the blood of Christ. He is not just the judge. He is the judge, but he is not just the judge. He is our advocate. And Christ has taken the full judgment for us. And so we can run boldly back to the Father, rehearse the gospel again in our head whenever we're being chastised. We don't need to forsake him or run away from him. We can embrace those moments now that he is refining us into his image. And for those who have never initially begged out for his mercy, cried out, he will show it to those who humble themselves before him. He is a God of compassion. Remember Adam and Eve, the first thing they did when they sinned, they tried to hide themselves and cover. And they, they were ashamed and they didn't want to fellowship with God. What did God do? He sought them out and he clothed them. 
And then he promised the Savior to come and eventually redeem all of mankind. Oh, we don't need to hide from him anymore. We can pray, pray, and he will show us great compassion. Next, we see the Lord's powerful response of righteous anger for greedy cravings. little different twist here. Verse 4, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again, saying, uh, and said, who will give us meat to eat? Interesting, right, in the story here, immediately after the easing of God's judgment, uh, Moses, who wrote Numbers, chooses to swiftly emphasize and focus on a group of Israelites known as the rabble or the mixed multitude. These individuals may have been uh, followers, sort of along for the ride with Moses and Israel, but lacking the sincerity, and they missed Egypt. These individuals harbored insatiable, greedy cravings for more, demonstrating a lack of contentment with what they've already had. And their influence spread like, like leaven affecting the entire community. And instead of recognizing the abundant blessings before them, the great salvation they received, the, the law of God revealed to them, the presence of God leading them, they fixated on desires of earthly satisfaction, and it led to more grumbling. And again, we know this is not the first time prior to Sinai and Exodus. We know they complained about, uh, about some things earlier, too. Their wicked hearts, I believe, are revealed through the repetition, both the repetition of their complaining, and here, too, we even see weeping. Oh, there's emotional involvement here with this meat. Anyone ever, ever weep over food, over a good meal, the extra meat? <laughs> Might be indicative of, of an idol. Verses 4, verses 10, verses 18, verse 20, all reference uh, weeping over the issue of meat and leaving Egypt. What complaints do you find yourself repeating over and over again? What do you find yourself weeping over? I believe, our, again, our repeated complaints and our emotional responses may reveal that which we truly love. They wanted meat. They wanted it so badly, they were willing to complain again, and they were willing to weep about it, indicating not just a normal desire for a little variety, but indicating an over-desire a wickedness in the craving. Look, again, it's one thing to ask God for things. It's another to weep and to be distraught about not getting the extra unnecessary meat. Is that really the end of the world? Friends, what do we weep over? What causes our hearts to, to break? Is, is it something that should truly cause us such strife? Or is it a greedy, wicked desire, an, an extra craving that we have? You know, I know so many people, um, young couples right now too, especially in, in light of 1 Timothy 6, 8, which says, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. And they're looking around at the market, and they're saying, I just want a house. No, I just want, I just want that, that house to raise my family, that dream house. And some people even weep over it. And they don't, they don't live in their luxurious dream home, weeping over things, getting emotional over these things. It might be indicative of something, friends. We need to examine ourselves and, and be 
be careful. And look, there's way too many commands I see in Scripture to rejoice in the Lord, to enter into his courts with thanksgiving, to always be thankful in every circumstance. Moreover, there's a promise that all things, are, are all spiritual blessings belong to us in Christ. There's a promise to seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else will be added to you. So, so what could possibly make us so sad? I say, take the whole world, give me Jesus. Take the meat, take the dream house, take the good paying job. Give me the daily manna, the bread of life. Jesus Christ, with that I am not just content, I am abundantly satisfied. Indeed, again, there is a time to be a little sad. I think Ecclesiastes leaves a little wiggle room for us. I'm not trying to over, uh, you know, over, over exaggerate here. Yet, we must consider, if we are in a perpetual state of sadness over an unmet, non-essential craving, they had manna, is that thing an idol in our heart? And I can't answer that question. That's something for each one of us to go before with the Lord. We also see that our complaints often focus on this excessive fleshly craving while neglecting God's present provisions. It says, we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now, see, our appetite is gone. There is nothing to look at except this manna. Here again, God has blessed the people, the law, the ark, his presence, the manna for sustenance that was there and, and is to be described. And they only remember what life used to be like in the good old days. They become bored with the miraculous provision of God and recall the, the days of feasting upon fish. The good old days of having some seasoning on their food. They have looked at the manna, looked at God's glorious provision, and have said, we've lost our appetite for this. This is not enough for us anymore. Now, here, there is almost, again, a parenthetical description of, of manna. Here's what it says. It says, now, the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people would go and gather it and grind it between two millstones and beat it in the mortar and boil it in a pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Even in the midst of these complaints, God is still taking care of them. God is still providing them with the manna, with the bread. Now, I'm sure if we had to live off of just baked cakes, something that tastes kind of like that alone, we too might be tempted to complain and, and though mysterious in some, some respects, we know manna was sufficient. It was sufficient, and it was God's glorious provision. Again, even amidst this complaining, God was still providing manna for them, yet they were not satisfied in it. They were discontent, bored. Their appetite was gone. They were complaining there's nothing except manna. They were bored with the bread of heaven, God's great provision and here the Israelites say again, we have nothing except this manna, complaining and weeping. Interestingly, we also know bread from heaven is symbolic of God's great provision of Christ himself in John chapter 6. Here's uh, J. Vernon McGee. He says, let's not sit back and say how terrible the children of Israel were. How about you, my friend? That manna speaks of Christ. How do you feel about him? Do you get tired of him? 
the predicament of the church today is due to the fact that folk have turned from the word and are trying to feed somewhere else other than on the manna which God has provided. Friends, is this bread of life in John 6, which God has given, is Christ enough for you? Is, is he still good enough to rejoice in, to delight in? Don't get overly familiar with the gospel message and seek to be satisfied in those old things of the flesh, those things from Egypt. They will not satisfy you just as the meat, we see, did not actually satisfy the Israelites. We see our excessive cravings will become loathsome to us, says the scripture. Verse 19, you shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a month until it comes out of your nostrils. I like, I like that. Um, and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So God says, all right, I'm going to give you the meat. He gives them exactly what they wanted. He gives it to them excessively, in fact. They are walking around, it says, in 18 inches of quail or so on either side of the camp. According to verse 31, they gather 10 omers minimum each. And some commentaries, I was a little unsure of this, some commentaries, older ones I was reading, were like, oh, that's about 86 gallons. Others were saying, oh, 480. Some were saying 500 or upwards. I'm not sure. Here's my big theological takeaway. It was a lot, okay? It was a lot. A lot of quail. Think about this. 600,000 Israelite men. Let's just say one quail per person for a month is 18 million quail. Now add wives and children. And now take into consideration they're probably taking more than one quail. It's a lot of quail. This is an insane, excessive amount of meat. And I think, again, this demonstrates the power of the Lord. This is exactly Moses was saying, how are you going to do this? God, God can make that happen pretty easily. And yet, the thing they desire so intensely, the meat they wept over, the meat God provided would too be loathsome for them. They get it all. The thing they wanted, they got. The thing they wept over, that they so desired, did not satisfy them. It was loathsome for them. And it says this happens, in, in the, according to the text, because the Lord who was among them was rejected. You see what they should have been obsessed with? God. You see what they, they should have been vested in? Not meat. God, that's who they should have been accepting and embracing and obsessed with and rejoicing because his presence was there leading them. They did not enjoy the law which was freshly given, nor his plans, nor his past provisions and displays of power, and they sought other things and became greedy. Psalm 106 gives a commentary on this. It says, verse 13, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his plan, but became lustfully greedy in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. Some older translations say he sent leanness to their souls. Friends, those things we weep over, even when we get them, cannot satisfy us in the way we truly desire it to satisfy us. 
that is because we were made to delight in the Lord. We were made to be satisfied in God. He is to be our vision. He is to be our all in all. He is the bread of life which sustains us. And all of these other things of Egypt, all of these other things that, that, that we try to stuff inside of us will not give us peace or happiness. Do not put God to the test. Do not demand God to give you some greedy desire because that very thing may be actually loathsome to you. Uh, in preparing one commentary I was reading mentioned a pastor who um, some, some person who started a business came in and said, hey, I want my business to do very well. Can you pray with me? And the, the commentary says, I was a young pastor then, so I prayed that his business would do well and that it would uh, flourish and do good and it would be successful. And he prayed for all those things, and then it happened. Yet, he lost his family, became wicked, greedy, deserted faith. Sometimes the kindest thing God can do for us is actually say no. These things can become loathsome to us. We also see that um, there's a lot of hard work here involved in this overindulgence of the fleshly craving. Verse 32, the people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered quail. He who gathered had... Uh, gathered the least, gathered ten omers, and they spread it out for themselves around the camp. So the people hear that God is going to give them what they want, and so in excitement they spend all day, all night, and all the next day gathering all the quail, putting enormous effort to hoard these quail. Remember the commentaries I mentioned, ten omers, 86, uh, you know, 480, upwards of 500, a lot. There's a lot of quail that they're gathering, and that's the minimum each there is a lot of work going on here. And, and the, it's truly excessive. It's truly greedy. They didn't have a refrigeration system here to even store all of this. They're just spreading it all about the camp. This is a true display of greedy excess. And they spent lots of time, lots, lots of effort attaining these excessive indulgences. How much time and effort do we spend on our fleshly indulgences? We spend hours gathering the meat we so desire that we weep over and almost no time feasting on the word of life. We too can find ourselves consumed by worldly pursuits, spending hour after hour, day after day, year after year, running the rat race for our true love, whether it be materialism or food or uh, sex, whatever it is. Greedy excess. Reflect on your own life, friends. Let's, let's reflect together. Are there areas in our lives where we're prioritizing earthly desires too much, spending too much time uh, trying to, trying to seek, seek after them? Let's commit again first to seeking the kingdom of heaven. We also see that we may be chastised for our greedy cravings. While the meat was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. Like the start of the chapter with the initial complaint of adversity, the anger of the Lord is again kindled, says the scripture. He brings judgment upon the greedy. 
while they are in the middle of enjoying their quail, chewing their quail, biting into that thing which they so desire, the anger of the Lord is kindled, and he strikes them and sends a severe plague. And who are the ones buried? The greedy cravers. Kibroth Hatava actually means graves of cravings. It says these things happened while the meat was still in their mouth. Meaning, too, that this, this really wasn't satisfying them. Anyone ever, like, eat a bunch of food and you're chewing it, and then you're just like, oh, this is so good, and then you spit it out? No. Because it's satisfying for the swallow, right? You want that, that food in your stomach. And here it says, while it's still in their mouths, the meat is still in their mouths, they are struck with the plague. Here, before even experiencing the satisfaction of the swallow, while it's still in their teeth, the judgment is brought. Psalm 78, verses 30 and 31 shed some light on this too. It says, before they had satisfied their desire, while the food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones, subdued the choice men of Israel. Notice the psalmist's commentary mentions that the cravers were the stoutest and the choicest men of Israel. Despite their outward strength and their prominence, these individuals who succumbed to their cravings, eventually those those very cravings led to their downfall. This serves, I think, as a, a very important reminder that no one is immune to the allure of these sinful cravings. And God will chastise anyone Who needs it? Don't weep over greedy excess. Don't let these things become idols. Instead of rejecting God, accept Him. Delight in Him. He will satisfy. He is the one who that true longing can at last be satisfied. He can swallow that bread. Anything else will not satisfy and will result in judgment. Now in between these stories, the story of the initial burning in verses 1 to 3, and this greed, there's, there's Moses. And so we're going to look at the Lord's powerful response of patient compassion for our weaknesses. So it, again, in between these records uh, where there's anger kindled, we see anger kindled in the beginning, anger kindled at the end, and judgment in both. In between these, there's a conversation with Moses and God, one in which Moses certainly does not act perfectly, but where God responds powerfully to Moses' weakness with patience and compassion. And we're going to investigate this now. Um, Before we do, though, as we're looking at how Moses uh, is about to have this conversation, a few more notes here. We see complaining is actually infectious to others. Sort of already talked about this. It started with the rabble, and then it spread throughout the camp. Here, it even spreads to Moses. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man Uh, At the doorway of his tent, the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. And it sort of leads Moses to, I think, pray in frustration the way he prays. Here is mighty Moses, the leader of the people. And he hears the rabble and notices the people complaining and hears their weeping, and he's so distraught. The Lord's anger was kindled, and we read about that, but Moses was also displeased and frustrated. Again, started with the rabble then spread, even affecting Moses. Friends, when we weep over our idols and when we're despondent over our unmet cravings, it causes harm not just to ourselves, but to those around us as well. Think of our family members, the husbands who 
crave after other women and weep because they do not have it. The women who crave after uh, materialism or whatever, whatever they crave after. I don't know what a woman crave after. Digging a hole here. <laughs> we all crave after things, all right? The people who crave after food. I'll point the finger at myself here. That, that might save me. Uh, and live unhealthy lives, right? Potentially going to an early grave. Think of how all of our cravings affect those around us. Moses heard and was displeased, and he prays before the Lord. And so here is the content of, of that prayer. First, we see that this complaint comes really from self-centeredness instead of focusing on God. Notice how many times there's I here. There's a lot of words on this, this, this screen it says, so Moses said, when I have not found, why have I not found favor? You have laid the burden of all the, this people on me. Was it I who conceived this people? Was it I who brought them forth? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. There's an awful lot of first-person language. There's an awful lot of I's and me's in there. Indeed, we tend to complain a lot more when the focus is on our, ourself and our abilities, don't we? When we feel like we need to be superheroes who solve the problems. When we feel like we need to be the big important leaders. When we focus on ourselves and our abilities instead of God, we get overwhelmed. But the real question is, why are we not focusing on God? Remember verse 23, his power is not limited. He just brought all these quail here. Millions of quail. Yet here is Moses early on obsessing over his own weakness and using this I language over and over again. And is it not true that the most frustrated people in the world will undoubtedly be those who, who look to themselves rather than to God? We all know, I think, the people who complain in our own lives, oftentimes ourselves, those who are complaining are often self-obsessed. Consider that person we all know, and they complain how awful their life is. They monopolize conversations with their own problems and their own grief. These people are some of the most miserable people in the world. This self-centeredness, you see, does not produce a flourishing life. Moses was in despair and wanted to die. I believe the source of, of this unhappiness is because He's not seeing God as he truly is in delighting in him. He doubts the power of the Lord. He goes before the Lord frustrated and he begins to blame God. You've made this hard on me. You have given me this burden. Yet God patiently puts up with Moses' weaknesses and dis deficiencies even uh, when we express frustration and blame towards him. We have a God who is compassionate towards us. He hears us in our imperfect moments and responds with compassion. He responds to Moses, not in anger. When I read the text, he responds in compassion and mercy. We see this to be the case even when we forget his power. Where, Moses says, where am I going to get all this meat for this people? For they weep before me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. Later on, 
Verse 22, should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should the fish and the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? The Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So, so Moses again, at, at first being very self-centered, says, where am I going to get all the meat for the people? It's all about Moses sort of bearing this large burden on his own, forgetting who's really in charge forgetting who's really going to provide that meat. And then, then afterwards, uh, thinking God, when God says, I'll do it, he's now thinking, all right, well, God must have to work how I work. He can't possibly have more means than me. God, what are you going to do? Are you going to slaughter all these birds? Are you going to bring the fish in? What are, uh, what, what are you going to do, God? He's not sure the Lord can actually handle it, doubting his power. Yet... God provided manna, God provided water, God provided protection for the Amalekites. There's no reason for this doubt to exist. Friends, we too, in our complaining spirit, often forget the power of God. We can forget he's never failed us. We don't ever need to complain about God or be frustrated or even wonder how he's possibly going to come through for us. If he said it, he has the power to do it and will do it. Simple as that. And friends, that's why it's so important to pick up those Bibles that are sitting on your laps and to read them and to delight in them and to trust in them. That is how you combat complaining spirits. God's power is not limited. He can respond according to his word perfectly every single time without fail. And even when we wrongly forget his power and character, he cannot deny himself. His word will come to pass. His power will see it through. He is patient. He is kind towards us. Even when we are very forgetful. And when we forget his power. He's kind with us when we wrongly despair. Look at, look at this request. I am not alone able to carry all this people because it's too burdensome for me. Verse 15. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. Or if I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. Here Moses thinks again he's sort of this lone ranger despising life. And he exaggeratingly here asks God to kill him. Friends, I say so much of the depression and sadness and anguish in our culture comes from viewing ourselves as if we're alone and viewing God's power as if it's very small. Viewing our circumstances as if we need to solve the problem and we need to figure it out on our own and we neglect the power of the Lord. We neglect the word. We neglect the presence of God and the Holy Spirit that lives within the heart of the believer. And, you know, I, I, it's, it really comes from doubting God's power. We see this happen uh, again, a spirit of despair kind of in Elijah in 1 Kings 19 when he's running from Jezebel, Remember? Despair, see, comes from not appropriately recognizing God's power. However, God indeed does have power. And he's working for us. And he loves us. And we're his children. Even evil will work for good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, as it says in Romans Again, what sorrow could possibly steal the joy that we have in Christ? What suffering compares to the certain glory that is promised, that, that he, he has shared with us in his word, that he certainly has the power to bring about? 
What grief then is justifiable for us to have to be so depressed and to be downcast when Christ has proven that he has all power, even power over death? Why then should we despair? Let us hope in him and stop our complaining, for he in power is bringing about a compassionate plan for us, just as he did for Moses here. Verse 16, the Lord therefore said to Moses, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people in their offices, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. So amidst all of Moses' assertions and wrongful uh, you know, complaining, amidst the lack of faith, God here is still responding with compassion and patience towards Moses. He does not despise him. He does not kindle his anger against Moses. Instead, he exhibits sympathy for his servant. He helps Moses by having him gather the 70 elders from Israel to bring them to the tent of meeting to stand there with Moses. Friends, Moses did a lot of things wrong, but he did some things right here. He spoke with God, and God had compassion. Don't, again, don't run from God. Talk to him. Pray. Pray uh, to him. He is compassionate. That is how he has revealed himself to be in the word. If you humble yourself before him, he will respond compassionately. You, you who are, are sinning, who are running from the Lord, he will have great compassion on you if you bow before him. God's plan of compassion is always there for his servant. He is compassionate to help his weak servants. We see God's plan of compassion. It's going to involve the Holy Spirit and other believers. Verse 17, I will come down and speak with you there. I will take the spirit who is upon you and I'll put it upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it alone. God sees Moses has compassion despite Moses' imperfections and sort of whining and complaining that Moses is doing. And God says, I'm going to appoint 70 elders to help you bear the burden, Moses. These people, again, were not just merely talented men who are serving in their own strength. We see that God also gives them the same spirit Moses had, his own spirit he puts upon the 70. He provides his Holy Spirit to empower them. And he provides his Holy Spirit, by the way, to empower us and places fellow believers in our lives to share the load. Just as Moses received assistance, from the 70 elders, God sends people into our lives to walk alongside us, to support us, to help us carry our burdens. So, so let's begin to be open to receiving God's compassionate provision through the spirit and the community of believers around us and extend that compassion to others as well, bearing each other's burdens in love. You know, and God, God could have come down and done something himself, done something a little differently. This is the Old Testament, too. God liked to do theophanies and pop in and out. and he, he liked to do that, but here he wants to use other people. Galatians 6, we are to bear one another's burdens. 1 Corinthians, we are one body, different gifts, many parts. God has given us the gift of one another. Some of us, I think, are so overwhelmed to the point of despair. And let me say, take a look at the people around you in this room. This is God's answer to your sorrow. This is God's answer to your sorrow. 
these men and women around you, if they believe in Christ, they too have the Holy Spirit. And it dwells in them permanently. In, in the New Testament, we see this, right? Back in the Old Testament, it just sort of came and left. That's why they were prophesying at one point, and then they didn't do it again. But it was a sign that God was doing something and establishing leaders. But for us, oh, we have been so blessed. The Spirit does not depart. And if you're a believer in this room, then God wants to use other people with the Holy Spirit to encourage you, to help bear that burden, bear that load. We see it always is going to entail empowerment from the Holy Spirit. In verse 25, the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. The Lord put his spirit upon the 70 elders, and they were immediately empowered to prophesy. The divine intervention, it served as a tangible sign of God's presence and God's approval, highlighting, again, the authenticity of the leadership, the establishment of the leadership. It's, it's crucial to recognize, again, um, this empowerment. It wasn't on you know, human talent or ingenuity. It was because the Holy Spirit enabled them to. They could not have prophesied without God. And from Old Testament to New Testament, God's compassionate plan unfolds through the empowering of His Holy Spirit, urging us to rely on His strength instead of our own abilities. And similarly, we need to help others and intend to help others, and we must rely on, on God's power rather than our abilities. Just as Moses and the 70 elders were empowered to do what they did by the Spirit to minister to the Israelites, we too must seek guidance and strength from the Holy Spirit for all of the ministry work we do. This acknowledgement fosters humility, dependence on God, ensuring that our efforts are infused with the wisdom He has, the Spirit of truth. And by the way, He's always going to work with that Bible. He's always going to be teaching you true things. Now, in this case here, they prophesied during this event, and they did not do it again. Again, remember in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come occasionally and then rest on His people, but it was not marked by permanence. Again, yet for us, though we may not be prophesying, the Holy Spirit remains. He remains our comforter as our enabler, the one who prompts us and uses us so that we need not feel overwhelmed. God's heart is always to work, uh, for us to work, to be in, while being empowered by the Holy Spirit, seeking his, his power and not our own abilities. We also see that God's plan of compassion, it leaves no room for jealousy, but only happiness for others. It says, two men had remained at camp. The Spirit rested upon them. They prophesied in the camp. Verse 28, Joshua said, Moses, restrain them. Verse 29, Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them too. So there's these two characters, Eldad and Medad, and for whatever reason, they're still at the camp. The scripture doesn't say, maybe they slept in. Um, did anyone come late to church this morning? Maybe it was a situation like that. I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But for whatever reason, they weren't at the tent of meeting. They were still in the camp. And they're seen prophesying in the camp. 
as the Spirit rests upon them. And so Joshua, who was Moses' attendant since, since his youth, hears this, and he takes it as an affront to Moses' authority. See, Joshua, I think, still had a lot of growing to do before he would lead the people. Um, and so he's a little threatened by this. He says, oh, Moses, isn't this a threat? However, when Moses hears the news of the prophesying, Moses' response is a happy response. He doesn't put an end to it or restrain them. He allows it to happen. He says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses, who before felt alone and self-centered, has now had sort of, it looks like to me, the selfishness worked out of him through God's compassion. Here, Moses is happy that God is using others. You see, there are two responses we can have when God uses others. The first response is to view them as a threat. The second response is to rejoice that God is doing something with his people. One pastor I was listening to when I was preparing put it nicely. He said, oftentimes in our pursuit of God, it turns out we really just wanted to be known as the anointed one. The next big leader, the next John Wesley, the next Charles Spurgeon. But perhaps we could use five John Wesleys and ten Charles Spurgeons. Here's, again, uh, something I was reading. The medieval theologian Anselm describing good Christian love. He says, But surely if someone else whom you loved in every respect as yourself possessed this, that same blessedness, your joy would be doubled. For you would rejoice as much for him as for yourself. If then two or three or many more possessed it, you would rejoice just as much for each one as yourself, if you loved each one as yourself. Therefore, in the perfect and pure love, where no one will love another less than himself, each will rejoice for every other as for himself. A beautiful picture of Christian love. And now today, we have all indeed been given his spirit if we are in Christ Jesus. We can all be used and we can all rejoice in how God is using one another. We all can rejoice time and time again as, as I sit down and watch Paul Johnson or Gilson up here preaching. I can say, amen to God be the glory. As I watch the smile on our greeter's face as I walk through the door, there need be no jealousy because God's spirit is at work. And my joy can be doubled or tripled because God has, is, is bringing his church together. Such a beautiful thing, a beautiful picture. I can sit under Joey Shavs on, at young adults on our meetings on Friday nights and I can say, praise God, praise God. I, I, I can do all of this and this is the blessed way to live. Friends, those of us who are struggling with jealousy, Oh, you are selling yourself short of happiness. Don't do it. Old Testament prophetic promise, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And it finds its fulfillment, I think, in the New Testament era. In the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers and all backgrounds and all walks of life, just as Moses desired. Friends, we are living the dream that Moses longed for experiencing the empowering presence of God in our lives, in our church. How blessed are we that the Spirit has been poured out upon us by the precious blood of Jesus Christ.
Oh, friends, I pray we put away complaining today and rejoice instead in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now and we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for that utmost, purest blessing, the Son which you have provided for us, that we may have life everlasting in you. Oh God, I pray that that thankfulness for you, uh, Lord, would produce in us action, that your Holy Spirit, God, would produce fruits in us as we're connected to that vine. Oh Lord, we love you, and we pray that you would transform us, that we would leave this place with our eyes fixed on you, and that we would not take them off. In Christ's holy name, amen.